0: You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms, Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction annie highwater and Lori mcdougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction they have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one during these conversations Lori and annie address the questions and concerns brought up by allies and recovery members and now coming up for air with Lori mcdougall and annie highwater
1: Welcome back, everyone, to Coming Up for Air. I'm very excited to join my co-host and a guest, my co-host, Lori McDougall, for this week's episode, which is signs and symptoms that there might be a substance problem. This topic came to be out of many discussions, and I know some of us receive emails of- clues and things that might be possible signs or symptoms. So we decided we would take some time in a podcast with some expertise involved and some direction to discuss what might be signs and symptoms of certain substances, certain behaviors, things like that, that you might be seeing in your own home. So welcome, Lori, and take it away. Hi, Annie. How are you this week? Hi, Great. So this week, we have a
2: special guest, Dominique Simon-Levine. She is the creator and CEO of Allies in Recovery. Hi, Dominique. How are you?
3: Hi there. Hi, Lori. Hi, Annie.
2: (laughs) Hi. So let's get started with a description of the psychological, physical, behavioral, all the different social signs um, of each particular drug. But before we get started, I'd like to let our listeners know that the information on many of the substances we are going to discuss can be found on the AIR website under news and resources, supplements, addiction, signs and symptoms of drug use just in case. So if you miss something or if you forget, or you need to refresh your memory for any reason, you might want to go back over this information. You can just go to the website. You'll find it in the news and resources section. Okay. First on our list, marijuana. Dominique, can you give us just kind of like a general idea of what are some of the signs and symptoms, the physical signs, the psychological signs if someone's using or has a substance problem with
3: So it's difficult to say whether the problem is to the point of abuse. That's more a discussion of how long it's been going on and what the consequences are like for the person. Um, Are they substituting pot smoking for other things in their lives that are important? But if you're talking about what it looks like when you're high on marijuana, that also is changing a little bit with all the edibles and the much stronger amounts of THC that, that people are smoking and eating and vaping. Typically, marijuana high is a, a relatively light high for the person. You can walk around and look like you're okay. You might find something funny that isn't funny to others. You may tend to be less willing to exercise, less willing willingness to move around. You might prefer just sitting around. Your eyes tend to be a little glassy. The person smoking or eating marijuana is typically not able to finish tasks or even begin tasks it is a, it's it's a very heady high so you are you're sort of bouncing between self talk internal dialogue and the interaction with your environment very self conscious some people like that some people hate it some people talk about feeling paranoia when they when they smoke and those are folks that usually don't end up with a marijuana problem the so one last symptom of marijuana high can be what colloquially we call the munchies.
1: One thing that was missed, I think that's a a sign of marijuana use, is there can be paranoia and um, a lot of analysis and and analyzing things. And then I have a family member that openly discusses his chronic lifelong use of it. And he refers to something he calls couch lock, that certain strains or whatever mood he's in for some weekends will put him into a couch lock mode where he will just hold the couch down all weekend. Right,
2: and also physical symptoms, you can have when someone's smoking pot, bloodshot eyes, if they're carrying around a lot of visine, bloodshot eyes, and those dilated pupils, if they have really
3: dilated pupils when normally they shouldn't.
1: And what does withdrawal from that look like?
3: There's an appetite with marijuana. You tend to be hungry. Food tastes better. That's one of the reasons cancer patients like it, is it breaks uh, problems of having appetite. And I've heard they're they're actually experimenting with using it with um, eating disorders. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know how that would help just because it makes you hungry. Yeah, I, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of pseudoscience out there on marijuana. It's never been studied very well. There there was a federal ban on on funding for marijuana research. There still is. There's so much on the internet about it. And when you go to look, I, I wrote a blog post that looked at a meta analysis, an analysis of all studies on marijuana, uh, done by one of the federal think tanks, and they found that there was there was only two areas that marijuana was beneficial, and, and one was possibly with MS, and the other was uh, MS and seizures, and the other may be PTSD. There's a big study going mm-hmm. on in Toronto with war veterans and PTSD, which could explain why so many people that have problems with pot also have an emotional disorder you know, chicken or the egg, which came first. Right. Uh, So So, bloodshot eyes, and you were mentioning too. So
2: what about the withdrawals? What does it look like with the withdrawals with with marijuana?
3: Well, they're not severe looking, right? There there can be sweats, there can be uh, certainly a bad mood, being grumpy, being
1: irritable, but they're not severe. Some of them can be anxiety.
2: And I've actually heard that, and I've done a little bit of reading on this, and I've heard that that's true for pot use when when pot was at when we had low doses of THC in the pot, but now that we're seeing like you like you talked about before, where we have edibles and we have much higher levels of THC in pot that they are starting to see more severe symptoms. Like I've heard about this cyclical vomiting. There's another problem that they're running into where people have to take a shower to cool off that actually it can cause you now not to be hungry. All sorts of weird you know, I've heard of psychosis and all sorts of weird symptoms that they haven't that they had not seen before, but now they're seeing it because there's higher levels of THC. Okay, so um, I guess the next drug on our list is alcohol, and I think we can kind of quickly get through alcohol because I I think that the signs and symptoms are probably relatively well known out in the public. Right. Right. I mean, the the physical signs alone of alcohol. You can smell it on somebody, you know, nine out of ten times. But what else? What else should people be looking for?
3: Well, again, you know, if if a family is suspecting alcohol, you know, it it can vary so much. I I was just talking with a family whose daughter just announced that she's been drinking again for the last year, and they didn't have a clue. And she lives with them, and and the reason they didn't have a clue was she would go off to the boyfriend's for two, three days, binge and then stop and and not drink at all during the week. So it was very complicated for them to to discover or to believe that that she had started to drink again. She would often complain of migraines, of feeling nauseous, um, and these were hangover signs. That's Um, like hidden in plain sight hidden in plain sight, right, that she would complain of migraines and they were just hangover headaches, you know, so, and she would sleep a lot. And, um, you know, so if you're a binger, you're going to go off and you're going to drink until you can't anymore. And that can be a few days. You can keep going for a few days. You can wake, go to, you can pass out and wake up still half drunk from the night before, add more alcohol into yourself, get back to being drunk again. It actually, it, it doesn't have the same effect as day one. Day two is is you have more control. You You can get to a point where you're actually drinking a lot and continuously and are able to Look relatively okay, and that's that's further into an alcohol problem. But it doesn't take that long. Progression of, of tolerance for alcohol goes pretty quickly, and start to drink 12 pack, 18 pack. You have to add some hard liquor to that. I mean, it, that all doesn't take very long to have happen. You know, withdrawals from from alcohol after a certain a certain length of time and a certain amount. Um, having been drunk is, is dangerous. You can have grand mal seizures and it's one of two drugs that you definitely need to have um, a supervised medical detoxification from the other one are benzodiazepines.
2: The benzos actually happen to be one of the drugs next on our list. How similar is alcohol and benzos? Like how similar are they in symptoms and how similar in, in like withdrawals?
3: Benzos are anti-anxiety drugs, so they they tend to make you tired and slow, and uh, maybe you slur a little, but it it looks like you're just very relaxed. It depends on how many you take. People with severe anxiety can take quite a few just to function. So again, there's a tolerance to them. There's a a biological baseline where some people are going to be able to take more than others. That drug is often... Paired with alcohol alcohol is a depressant, but it can for a lot of people who drink it it jazzes you up, it gives you energy it, it gives you an alertness and a, and a desire to go do stuff and, um, and benzos kind of cut into that some so it can look a, it can look a couple different ways depending on on if you're taking them in combination or not the withdrawals from benzodiazepines they can take a little while to come on uh, 24 to 48 hours, all of a sudden you feel like your, your chest is going to blow up. You have terrific anxiety. You can't sleep. You're uncomfortable in your body. It's very uncomfortable. And like I said, it's the other drug that you have to be medically supervised to
1: detoxify
3: from. You can die
1: from alcohol withdrawal too, as well. Is that right? Right. Both alcohol and benzoblapine. I remember when um, I would once in a while, you know, And that's in my book as well. I have no shame admitting it. Binge drink in my 20s with friends. I would not do anything social for years and then go out and lose my mind for 24 hours and then hate myself and hide. But I remember one of the things was that I would have extreme anxiety and embarrassment the next day. And I had heard on a medical podcast about a year ago that that's a sign of alcohol withdrawal when you have binge consumed alcohol that the part of the withdrawal is that anxiety and embarrassment and that racing mind is actually your body withdrawing from it it was interesting That's right yeah you, you you'll wake up you won't be able to get
3: back to sleep yeah you you, you feel very depressed i mean yes. you feel very down on yourself typically the other the other time you benzos are often used is to come down off cocaine or a stimulant crack or methamphetamine because it enables you to fall asleep where those drugs will keep you up for a long long time you're, you're no longer high from them but you're withdrawing and you're feeling really dark and depressed but you're not able to sleep so people will take a, a benzo at that time too.
2: what i find interesting is so many people think that if you have a drink of alcohol it will help to relax you and put you to sleep but everything i've read says the total opposite is true that actually you may get to sleep initially, but it's not a well-rested sleep, that you're actually not getting the sleep that you need.
3: You know, the person who takes a a drink to fall asleep isn't your problem user.
1: Before we go on, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsor, Allies in Recovery. Since 2002, Allies has been helping families like yours and like mine Cope with the substance use of a loved one. Join Allies in Recovery today and you'll have access to a wealth of information, strategies, and community to help you navigate the minefield of addiction. That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the show. Our next substance is methamphetamine, cocaine, and other stimulants. So what are some signs and symptoms that that might be going on with someone in your life?
3: Well, that's, uh, you know, the high from those, methamphetamine lasts hours and hours and hours. A cocaine a hit of cocaine only lasts twenty minutes. Uh, I did not know that. Smoking a, smoking a crack pipe maybe maybe as long as that, 20, 30 minutes, before you need another hit. And so you are you're, you're you're stuck. You're stuck at the table, you're usually not doing a whole lot. People can sneak around their days taking little sniffs of, of, of cocaine, but it's not an easy drug to to be functional on. You're jittery, you're fast-talking, you're impatient. Could it compare to a lot of caffeine? It's a much better high than caffeine. You know, you drink too much caffeine, you don't feel so well, but you can be high on cocaine and it's euphoric. Oh, okay. I really do think you're the smartest. everything <laughs> you say is wonderful, you have great ideas. I mean, you are the top of the world. And then it all comes crashing down and you go into the blackest hole. And uh, unless you get another hit of it, you're going to stay in that black hole for eight to 12, two days, you know, eight to 12 hours, even even a day or two. So you're very uncomfortable and you can't sleep. Okay. With amphetamine, people, um, people buzz for days and days, you know, they'll, they'll take it again after they start to come down and they're not eating, you're not eating on any of these drugs, you tend to lose weight. Again, you, you, you feel yourself the most creative, the most cerebral, the most um, interesting person. And I think in terms of what it's doing in your biochemistry, it's it's one of the top-reaching drugs. You know, sex and food and pot are all on, on, on a list. The, the stimulants have, have you reach a much, much higher level of, of chemical, of whether it's endorphin or dopamine or both, I, I, I can't say.
1: If it's a much higher reach, is it a much farther? crash. Yeah,
3: it's a terrible oh. job.
1: Terrible. I have heard people who have been cocaine users say the morning after is the worst, blackest depression where you feel like the biggest loser ever and you that's what one thing that makes you immediately want more.
3: You have to you have, yeah So the opi- you know the opiates make you so physically sick. That's part of the reason you feel so badly but you are physically sick. There is no physical withdrawals really from from these stimulants it's all psychological. It, it crushes wow. your, your mood, and, um, but your body's sort of along for the ride. It's not able to sleep, but it's nothing like an alcohol or an opiate last point on that is uh, you know sometimes they won't medically supervise uh, withdrawal from
1: from a stimulant because there's nothing dangerous about it. okay that makes sense which brings us to our final substance for today narcotic painkillers and opiates as far as even vicodin all the way to heroin what are signs that that may be in use in play in our homes
3: So that's a, that's a, a numbing euphoric high. You tend to look a little knocked out, but not necessarily. You can also bring yourself back to a state of normalcy if you're a, a user, a regular user. It's it's a feeling of well-being, of not being worried about anything. Uh, the person looks again with the, the sort of pinned eyes and glassy eyes and th- there can be your skin itches. So you'll see some scratching of the face and the upper. Or So, but again, it really depends on the amount uh, you can take a sort of a functional amount and, and look totally normal. You can go and get high, take a lot and get high. And there you can, um, you can look like you're passing out. And if you, if you do pass out and you see someone like that, it's serious. You need to, to worry about overdose because it's not like you're passed out on alcohol. Passing out on an opiate is, is, is part of its lethalness. Yeah. It means you're, you're starting to overdose. Your respiratory system is stopping. And what so does withdrawal
1: look like? Are,
3: you know, withdrawals are excruciating. You look like you have the flu. Your, your joints hurt. You don't have a fever, but you feel like you have a fever. Everything hurts you're stuffed up, you have diarrhea. Uh, The opiates are very constipating and the opposite happens when you have withdrawal. You start to have diarrhea, you can vomit, you can't sleep, you can't sit still, you're very restless, your body is restless, your legs are restless. It's It's a very uncomfortable, you don't know where to put yourself and it can last depending on the kind of opiate it is. A long A long-lasting opiate like a methadone or a suboxone can go on for days, weeks. You can have insomnia for a month. It it takes a long time to work its way out of the system and for your your system to sort of become normal again.
2: Right. And what we're talking about here today is we're talking about acute withdrawal because there's all these other psychological and, and continued physical withdrawal that lasts for a very long time right so we're we're just talking about this acute getting the drug out of the system withdrawal.
3: I've looked into what it's called dopamine withdrawal syn- syndrome, and it it's talked about more by people with um, mental health issues that have taken like anti. Parkinson's disease, drugs that are uh, fabricating dopamine, but I think it's, it's true for a lot of these other drugs, which they depress dopamine, your own body's ability to create its own dopamine, and you have a, a real struggle getting back to the place where your body's fabricating sufficient amounts and that you're, you're functioning normally again. So that's what can take months. You're very flat. You're very, you, you appear depressed. And that's true for a lot of these drugs. It just, it's going to take a while. And depending on your vulnerability to begin with, it could be that you never had a well-functioning biochemical system, dopamine system, and so on, that, that, that these drugs really took you to the moon more. You may have even a harder time getting off of them. There's there's a lot of variability in how people withdraw. When you read some of these these books of of users who are trying to come off of these various substitute medications, uh, medication assisted treatments, you know that some people have much less trouble than others. But as you say, Lori, it can it can go on for quite a while.
1: I feel that there's no withdrawal so miserable, though, that it's not worth getting through it to get your life back, to get your family back on track. I mean, I just think you can get through any type of misery, whether you need medical support or not, to get your life back. So as miserable and negative as it sounds, it's worth enduring it to get your sobriety.
2: Right. And I think what we're talking about today is just giving families an opportunity to understand what our loved ones go through when we're asking them. To, uh, to get sober and to go through withdrawal, what to right. expect. I right?
1: also have family members that think if withdrawal is such excruciating suffering, they would rather sneak pills and things to them so they don't have to suffer. So there are sometimes, I think, opportunities of sort of being involved and then meshed where you try to prevent the suffering If that makes sense. I know I've seen that in meetings and things like that. And I know this is information just for the families to know. But I think the hope is also that you can live through going through it, no matter how bad it is. Exactly, Annie. In terms of CRAFT, you really,
3: if you're seeing active use or withdrawal, you want to step away from that. You don't want to, A, try to prevent it, and you don't want to raise the bottom of the withdrawal. You don't want to say it's going to be okay or let me get you some soup or let me take get you to bed or let me draw you a bath. or You want them to feel the total effects of that withdrawal. It's a, it's a time in which you want to remove your rewards, you want to remove yourself. You want to allow the natural consequences of that withdrawal. It's excruciating, but if they're willing to go through it, they need to go through it. The problem right. is that once you're in a, a protracted period of withdrawal, like that opiate withdrawal I was talking about... It is very, very hard to keep your motivation going, to not knowing full well that all you have to do is go get a hit and all of this is gone. That's what you're up against right. uh, as a family member when your loved one is in the throes of, of withdrawal. My big problem with a lot of what I'm seeing out here today is that there's not sufficient support for the withdrawals, whether it's, it's a medication-assisted treatment withdrawal based on somebody's wanting to come off of a methadone or a Suboxone or whether it's any other kind of withdrawal. Only those that are medically supervised and necessary are paid for by insurance typically. So where do you go to be safe and supported while you feel this badly? Uh, So it ends up being in typically the family's house. Mm -hmm. If you're going to get any help at all, it's going to be your parents or your your husband or wife or or a a sibling. There can be a conversation about, you know, I will help you as long as you want to be in withdrawals and you want to get through this, but I'm not here to be, you know, a revolving door.
1: And let's just take a quick break for a
3: word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education, and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County prevention is key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or caresnj.org or call 973-625-1998.
1: Um, I have a couple of scenarios of questions from the public, either people that have called or emailed me about certain situations or things that have come up in meeting with families. So there's just a couple. And are these signs of substance use or possible relapse? The first one is a friend who had emailed me about odd behavior she is witnessing from her boss at work that seemed to start up over the past couple of years where it became increased scenarios of crisis and drama within his family that he came and complaining about and that turned into disappearing becoming defensive in his personality certain things didn't add up um, as far as information he would provide places he would be that wouldn't line up just you know when things don't ring true or pan out as true strange involvements began to appear at the workplace and there was an extreme loss of focus and memory are those possible signs of substance use They can be, they certainly can be. It can also be a gambling issue of other
3: process addiction sex addiction, gaming, I mean, other things can, could be taking control over him. And you can't rule out in any of this, whether there's an organic mental health problem also. And it sounds like as a, as an employee, she's not, she's not clued in necessarily to what's going on at home in his family and that sort of thing. So it's hard to know, you know what the causes of the drama are. I think in any of these scenarios, you have to ask, you know, is it a chemical addiction? Is it a process addiction? Is
1: it it an organic mental health problem? Is it a combination of of two or three of these? Right. I think a good question also is how close do I want to get to this fire? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Another one is that a, a mom had emailed me and said, my daughter has been clean from a year. I believe it was from opiates, possibly heroin. She works but is now always broke and borrowing money, sometimes asking for money for clothes that never appear. She becomes pretty hateful and defensive when questioned. Are these signs of a relapse? Possible.
2: You know, I like this, this question because my thoughts on this are if the mother is emailing you with this question, she probably has a sinking feeling in her stomach and something in the back of her mind saying, I'm pretty sure she's relapsed. And I have found that nine out of 10 times, it's true if those are the feelings that I'm having. What is it you say? If it walks like a duck and quacks (laughs) like a duck, it must be a duck. And the thing is, is that we're talking about, uh, we're talking about drugs, we're talking about life and death situations. So if you're feeling that in your gut, and if it's kind of in the back of your mind that this is a good possibility. I've always found that it's best to go with that because you can always apologize later because really you're in there to try and guide this person in a way that they're not putting their life in
1: danger. Right.
3: You know, Kraft would say the mother needs more information. She doesn't need to ask her daughter for it, but she needs to investigate. She needs to focus on how her daughter appears when she's coming home from work, what are the signs and symptoms? Is she changing her schedule? So she's asking for money, what else is there? It sounds like an incomplete picture to me. I agree with Lori, you, you, you wanna go, uh, your gut is a very important piece of this because you've been there time and time again. Asking directly often doesn't get you a, a clean answer. It just, as, as this mother learns, she gets defensive and angry, but she needs a little more information. There's nothing in that, question that tells me how she looks, who her friends are. Is there a certain time of the week that it's worse than, than others? There's there's a lot more to know. And then you have to come down on whether you think there's use or there's not. And you do that independently of the daughter. You do that based right. on everything you've compiled. And then you're going to start behaving in a way that responds to when you think she's using. And certainly when she's asking for money, if, if it's makes no sense why she's asking for money. That's a very good clue that there's money being spent on something that she doesn't know about.
2: And can't you take craft and just start applying it to bad behavior and good behavior anyway? I think, (laughs) you know, just start applying those tools that you learn when you watch the video modules, right? You just start applying that to everyday behavior. If she's being disruptive, you disengage. You don't want that behavior around. You want to stop that behavior. So you disengage, do it like you talked about in a very non-confrontational way. But then when the behavior is good, you start rewarding, right? You start engaging with that person and rewarding again.
3: It's minute by minute, day by day, right? So if a daughter it seems to be in an okay mood and doesn't seem high and is home and... Then you step back in, and you and you engage, and you ask her questions about, you know, how things are going, her life. I mean, but keeping it light and just
1: keeping it a connected sort of conversation with with the daughter, um, rewarding the daughter for that behavior. Um, an important one as I um I received, I felt was important, and I could kind of relate to. I didn't have too much of trouble with this, but. I definitely had a heart for this mother that emailed and asked if her teenage son might be getting into partying with his friends from the baseball team. And she said he was becoming secretive, but could this be that time frame of where they individuate and kind of become secretive anyway? She's kind of certain seeing friends change and a little bit of belligerent behavior and wanting to be gone longer and talk of teenage drinking. And one thing I want to say, I have an opinion about this is that, when they're teenagers, you need I feel you need to be all over their technology, especially if there's a suspicion, because there could be a life and death, alcohol, opiate, bullying issue going on, and your kids should be comfortable knowing you're going to get into their conversations from time to time, sure that you're checking things out, that they're healthy and on point. And that's my opinion, but even more so, if you have a suspicion, you need to be all over their technology.
3: Well, I I tend to agree. I don't think, you know, it's not a fair fight, and you need to know what's going on, and if that means going through the drawers and and looking at their emails and that 's what you need to do this is not a this is not a moment for respect and privacy in that sense when you're trying to discover what 's going on i mean this mom you know there's there's some good material online about preventing abuse to from to drugs and co- the conversations that parents should have with their children. This is more a conversation about you know the the prevention of it than than it is the abuse of it right i mean she's she's concerned he's heading down a, a bad pathway she should be communicating with him there's Partnership for a Drug-Free America. There's, there's a couple really good sites that talk a lot
1: about how to, how to do that well. I would agree. I, I heard a recovery leader speak once and she said she got into some teenage drinking and her mother had taken her to a support meeting and she heard, you know, people talk about, give leads about what they'd come out of. And so when she got into it a little deeper in college and it got out of control, she knew the path to recovery she knew like where to turn to for support and where to start to seek sobriety and to get on point. So that might be something to think about as well. And the last scenario that was sent is lady called me and said, I think my husband is extending his use of painkillers after a recent surgery. He's seeing pain clinics kind of become secretive about when he gets prescriptions and his use of how many pills, what time during the day. And to me, that defensiveness and secrecy, I'd had a treatment center leader once tell me, the more you're seeing that defensiveness and secrecy, especially in the midst of a, of a substance concern, the more it's probably happening. So she's asking, after a surgery, seeing all these signs, is that a sign that something's going wrong?
3: Well, I mean, it's it's a sign for sure, and it's if, if we were to go back in her husband's history, what's the alcohol use? What's the pot use? Does he smoke cigarettes? I mean, do you, is he already somebody with an addiction vulnerability? Because right now, it, the message out there is somehow people are just sort of struck with opiate addiction, and I don't believe that's the case. I, for the vast majority of people who get who start having problems with prescription opiated pills, it's because they have had a vulnerability to addiction and may have already become regular users of other substances and now they're being introduced to an opiate which happens to have a very short life before you become addicted so what's the past like and you know if he's taking more than prescribed and he's sneaking new prescriptions in and stuff that's yes not a good very bad sign all
2: right cause for concern let me interrupt the show for just a moment. I'd like to remind listeners there's a wealth of information about topics related to substance use disorder on alliesinrecovery.net. Allies in Recovery is a private members-only site that connects families dealing with substance use. It also teaches strategies for both helping your loved one and self-care.
1: That's alliesinrecovery.net. Now back to the topic. So if all of these things are signs, basically, and you're realizing that you're coming to a place of truth that there is a substance problem returning or beginning in your home, the question now is, what do we do? So we've gone into some scenarios of what is possible beginning of drug use or possible relapse. So Lori, what do you have next?
2: Okay. So Annie, I took a look at what we can do as family members if a relapse has occurred. And I went to the discussion blog under community on the Allies in Recovery website. So I went to community discussion blog. Then on the right-hand side, I scrolled down to topic. And the topic that I picked was relapse. And I found a couple of questions and responses that I found to be very informative on what to do if a relapse occurs. Two questions and responses in particular, I found to be helpful. The first question was, her relapse feels like a slap in the face. Oh yeah. Right? And we we I hear this all the time that people I, take it very personally when someone relapses.
1: Sometimes more personally when they then when they first found out drug use was even happening because you think it's yeah. over. Like and I didn't
2: raise you this way. How how can you do this to me? Right? Well, that kind I did of attitude.
1: All the- Yeah, or I did all the right things and we jumped on board to bring this to an end and then you did it again after promising that you were doing better, things like that. A lot of dynamics. Right. And
2: it's a big huge letdown when they go off to rehab. You know, I don't know. They're so Yeah, it's very scary. So scary. And then the second comment with the responses was he's just out of rehab and I think he's drinking. And I just wanted to get it out there in case our listeners would like to go and just read those um, two particular comments that I found incredibly helpful. In the question where he's just out of rehab and I think he's drinking, this is a case where the wife believes that the husband has started drinking. The response, the answer to that particular question Allies in Recovery says to go back to module one and rewatch the video and do the exercises. It's an opportunity to review that many times relapse is a part of the process of recovery. It doesn't mean it'll happen, right? It doesn't mean that relapse will happen. But if you expect it when it does happen, you won't be surprised and blindsided. Yeah,
1: if right? you understand it. Right. Right. You don't don't come to a place where you are so rigid and strict about the process that you resist possibilities because that's when you get blindsided and it hurts so much worse. You just have to be open to the possibility even if you don't want it to be, even if it's not always going to be, just to be open to it.
2: Right. I remember thinking that there was a, a good chance that after he went to rehab and he was in recovery for I don't know a couple of months that chances were less and less that he was going to go into relapse. When it did happen, because eventually it did happen in our family, I remember just being devastated and just thinking that there was no way out of this. That this meant there would be no victories. Right, exactly. But understanding, if you can understand it before they go off to treatment, or, or even if you can just start to understand it while they're in treatment and kind of learn that okay, relapse nine out of 10 times is a part of the process of recovery. That way you can go ahead and you can kind of create a plan ahead of time so that when it happens at a time when despair sets in again, and you can just review your plan and you can set it into
1: action quickly. We start over smarter.
2: Right. No more being paralyzed. No more not yeah. knowing what to do. Right. You may have that initial emotional response, but because you're pre- prepared with a plan, you can move through it quicker and, it can, and you can allow yourself to feel the feelings, right? right. Because that's, that's a part of the problem is we feel the feelings, but you can still respond in a productive way.
1: Right. And, yeah. And start finding your way back to hope and peace and serenity again. Right. Yeah.
2: A second benefit to understanding relapse as a part of the process of recovery is that there can be a better understanding that it's not personal, right? That we kind of talked about this. We yeah, touched yeah. on this a little right. bit that your loved one is not doing this to you. Just like in the comment, her relapse feels like a slap in the face, understanding that it just feels that way. Feelings, right? Feelings are yeah. just that. They're just feelings. Feelings are not facts. Our loved one is not relapsing to hurt us. They are relapsing because they're still learning about themselves. Maybe they're not convinced that sobriety is the way to go, or maybe they're just learning that, you know, maybe they think something like, oh, I can control this. I, can, I you know, as long as I just control it, I'll be fine. But personally, I have found that That when I take it personally, I'm assuming that I know what's going on in their mind. That I'm assuming that the person is saying to himself, you know what, I think I'll hurt my mother.
1: Or that you're assuming this is the worst case scenario and things you're just taking, you know, I heard somebody say in relation to this, when you're hit with that despair, sometimes you need to break down like it's the end of the world so you can realize it's not. It's not, right? So you just kind of got to break down and deal with it and then get up and face it. And then how do we move forward?
2: Right. And that's the other thing is like, I find that I think I know what they're thinking. I'm trying to mind read or I think I'm mind reading. And usually I find that I'm wrong, right? That I'm not reading their mind. And I find that I need to just take a step back, take a deep breath, do some thinking. Focus on your own mind. Right. Exactly. So again, if I have a a plan in place, I don't have to come up with a response. I don't have to stop and figure that all out. I can just start responding in a way that I know is going to benefit them and benefit me. And it kind of frees me up to go ahead and work on those awful feelings of despair. Yeah. Right. Go and get myself help.
1: Turn to my DBT workbook and return to my breathing exercises. Go to right. a yoga class, call a friend, take a break, watch a movie, tend to yourself because it is terrible. It feels like the world fell out from under you again, but right. a lot of things feel like that. And then you have to regroup and move the family forward. Right.
2: And all of these things that we're talking about right now, they can all be applied as well to the beginning of use. Right. So you can go to module one on the website. And you can watch module one and start to understand what the recovery process is all about. And a third piece that I got out of the response is that, and the two questions, is that we have to go back to our toolbox, right? We have to go back to pulling out those coping skills that we've been working on by watching our video modules. So maybe we have to go back to module five and module six and start doing the exercises and employing techniques such as disengaging, stepping away in a very cool and calm manner. Find right. a
1: meeting and go that way. Or we have a toolbox, start to compile one that is right. your support, your people.
2: Right, and you know, start. You can do things. You can start rewarding sober moments. You can start disengaging in a very, you know, in a very controlled way. And there's an example actually that they, that they give for which question? Let me think. This one was for the for the wife whose husband had relapsed. Because I thought I I was reading through it and I was like, geez, I don't know how I could implement this. And they, and there's an example of what it might look like for the woman talking to her husband when she suspects he's drinking. And it starts off with something doesn't feel right. So it's not, it's not an accusation. It's not confrontational. It's just something doesn't feel right. But it's also letting that person know that something's off, that you, that you're not Letting it just go by, right? The next part of the, uh, towards the end of the comment, it's I'm going to read in bed tonight, right? I'm not going to cook dinner. I'm not going to sit in the living room and watch television with you and carry on a conversation. I'm going to disengage and I'm going to do it quietly and I'm going to go take care of myself. You know, I'm going to go into the bed and I'm going to do some reading by myself. When you do this kind of thing, it really takes a lot of the blame Right, and a lot of the
1: chaos and the argument it really chaos. takes it out of there. Say, it takes it takes you out of the chaos, and it starts to put the chaos away from you.
2: Right, and so it what that what all of this does when you come up with a plan, when you you start to have a response that you're going to utilize already in place, and you rewatch, you know, you go back, you review the video modules, and you rewatch them and you really kind of fine-tune exactly how you're going to approach this, it really sets up an environment that maybe the relapse isn't going to be a long run. Maybe it's going to be something short-lived. Maybe not right? Maybe
1: that's not. You'll be okay either way. You have to be okay either way. The healthier that we are, the healthier the situation becomes and the more the chances that how we respond and behave and interact in the midst of it creates a healthy environment for them to consider healthier behavior. Right,
2: right, exactly. So if, you know, if any of our listeners want to go on and, and just read about relapse in the discussion blog section, There's some great questions and great responses, and and we'd love to hear from you. So if you have any questions and you want to email us, you can reach us through the podcast on the
1: website. Yeah, I, I would like to say that if you think you're seeing signs of the beginning of drug use or that you're just becoming aware of it or signs of a relapse, again, Break down like it's the end of the world And then realize it's not You're welcome to reach out to us There is a wealth of information On the Allies in Recovery website There are meetings to attend There is information galore That I feel like I wasn't as aware of When we were in it As there is prevalent today You are not alone It's not the end of the world Don't go through it alone There's hope Yes, there is All I got. Thanks so much See you next time on Coming Up for Air Okay, thank you, Annie Bye Bye Bye-bye
0: Thank you for listening to this coming up for air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online. Or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.